small matter today is that I'm going to hand you over to, um, to Stuart in a minute. And Stuart's one of our concept training um, trainers, and he's going to do the, the keynote this morning. At half past 12, we're going to come back, and I'd really ask, it would really, really help if we could really come back promptly after lunch to get into our workshop groups. Stuart's going to remain in here, and Stuart's workshop is Deliberate Self-Harm and Suicide. So if anybody's doing that workshop, if you congregate here at half past 12. Okay, so without further ado, I'll hand you over to Stuart. Okay, thanks, Stuart. Morning. First of all, can I ask, can you hear me all right at the back? Yeah. Second question, are you okay with my accent? Good. <laughs> if people say no to that, I know that they've understood anyway. Um, if you're okay, I'm not going to try to, as I call it, talk posh, because I can actually do that, but I end up sounding like Tony Blair. Um, and the other thing I do is I tend to do this whenever I do that as well, so, so it's like I'm becoming Tony Blair. So I'll just be, be me. I'm from West Cumbria, so that's where the accent is. I'll tell you a little bit about me. I'm not going to spend forever talking about who I am because that's not what we're here for. Uh, and the other thing, you know how it is with, um, I suppose it's like with a wedding speech, that a speech is never too long for the person making it and never too short for the people who have to listen. So I will tell you a little bit about me, but not very much. And I suppose the, the first thing to say is I'm a psychiatric nurse by, by profession and I had a very traditional psychiatric nurse training back in the, uh, in the early 1990s. And if I'm brutally honest, you can sum that training up in three sentences. And those three sentences are these. First of all, the doctor is always right. <laughs> Secondly, if you disagree with the doctor, don't worry, we will medicate you until you agree. <laughs> And thirdly, if we can't get you to agree, we will label you as an uncooperative or personality disordered patient and we will exclude you from our service. I know that might sound trite, but I'm absolutely sincere. That was the unspoken message that ran through my training, like the words in a stick of rock. But can I ask, have any of you come across that approach to mental health care before? Have you seen that? No? Yeah, you've seen it. Yeah, a few people acknowledge you that. Um, what do you make of it? You can see, I got better, you're alright. It is, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you what I think, I think it's arrogant. Because as far as I'm concerned, nobody is always right. And it doesn't matter whether you're a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, an OT, a support worker, nobody is always right. And all we achieved, certainly in my early years of practice, all that, uh, all that I achieved was I created this big barrier between myself and the people I was trying to work with. And, and then I wondered why I wasn't very effective. And well, looking back, it's fairly obvious, really. So, like a lot of my colleagues, I, uh, I started trying to find a different way to do the, to do the work that I was doing. Uh, and I, I'm not trying to pretend I invented anything here, because I didn't. I just I jumped on a bandwagon as it trundled by. There were a lot of us at the time that got fed up with that, that approach. Uh, and I started looking at, I suppose, the, the social model would be the way to put it. The idea that people have rights to choose, they have their own experience, that's valid, that's legitimate, and really all I should be focusing on is helping them with any, any distress that they have, rather than worrying too much about trying to fit them into the boxes of, of psychiatric diagnosis. 
Uh, I would hope that that's going to be fairly familiar territory for those of you in this room, that, that that's the way that you would prefer to work, that you work with the person rather than worry about a label. Is that fair to say? All right, good. I don't think I need to say much more about who I am, except just to, um, just to say that I'm not coming at you from an ivory tower. It's not that I've read a book. I've been in the real world. I understand the problems that you people face because I face them as well. So if I say anything today where you find yourself sat there thinking, this can't be right, or that might be okay where you are, Stuart, but it wouldn't work in my practice, don't sit there and stew about it. Shout out, ask about it, talk about it, because I, I, one thing I will guarantee you, if you sit there for an hour and three quarters and let me witter at you, this will be death by PowerPoint and you will all be asleep by about half past ten. So don't do that to yourselves. Join in, make the, make the session yours. If there's anything that you want to challenge, that's okay too. I'm a big lad, I can't take it, I promise. Um, make the day yours. But, anyway. More than that, I think we need, to, um, we need to get on with this properly. So, if I can make this work. Thank you, Colin, for lending me his clicky thing. I'm not good with clicky things, but... Does it work? Yes. What does mental health mean? Over to you. What is mental health? <laughs> Why are you thinking of a drink of me coffee? What is mental health? Mental health is an illness. It's a starting point. A state of physical well-being. Any more for any more? I think we all have mental health. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things is when you ask that question, what is mental health, people start talking as if the question was, what is mental illness? And that wasn't the question. The question is, what is mental health? Which is interesting in itself, because that's the, the answers that we tend to get, isn't it? Well, I will say, I don't know the answer to it. I don't know how you define mental health. Um, other than to say that we're interested in people not being abnormal, that would be the technical way to put it. It's very difficult. If you look at the, the World Health Organization's definition of health, it talks about a state of complete well-being that is certainly physical, psychological, emotional, and social. And I think it's very difficult to define mental health without, as opposed to an extent, ignoring what the World Health Organization say, and. Um, and looking at symptoms and whether or not they're there. That's not the best way to do it, but it's probably the only realistic way we have in this culture right now, because we have no working definition. And part of the reason for that is because it changes. Uh, as the culture changes, definitions of mental health and mental disorder change. That's why, for example, up until fairly recently, things like homosexuality were seen as mental disorder, which, to my mind, is silly. But that only changed in 1992 in this country when it was taken out of the, the diagnostic manual. So we have to think about mental health in relation to the culture that we're in. Does that make sense? It's whether or not you fit society. And in one sense, that's um, quite unpleasant, I think, because it says you can't be different. Which is interesting. What do you make of that? That mental health is about fitting in. 
It is. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, you, you're in sin. Yeah. I'm fairly on too. So. Yeah. I mean, actually, it, it used to be better than that, or worse than that. If you go back to the 19th century, in the early 20th century, there was a diagnosis called moral defective. That's interesting, too. Um, anybody know what the criteria were for moral defective? Yeah, absolutely. You had to be female. So, fellas, you were all right. You couldn't be moral defective. You had to be pregnant or have children. And you had to have no means of supporting your children. Which often meant unmarried, but it could also mean widowed. What immediately hit you about that? It's sexist, certainly. What's it trying to achieve, though? <coughs> when you start putting finance and the ability to provide for your family into a psychiatric diagnosis, what are you really about? Right, because it's not about mental health, is it? It's about economic factors. Interesting, isn't it? Now, we've moved on a lot from there, but one thing that I think we do need to bear in mind when we're talking about what is mental health, what is mental disorder, is that an awful lot of the diagnoses that we use right now have a heritage that's got nothing to do with health or wellness and everything to do with cultural norms that may not be that relevant anymore. We have moved on, but let's not forget that's the heritage. Does that make sense? All right, good. Any questions, comments or challenges so far? No? All right, jolly good. Who's that? Oh, it's up there, Joan of Arc. <laughs> I think there's a very interesting question about Joan of Arc, and you can ask it about lots of people throughout history. And it's that one. Was she a gifted martyr? Or was she psychotic? Let's have a show of hands. How many people think that Joan of Arc might have been mad? <laughs> How many people think Joan of Arc might have been a gifted martyr? See, I'll put my hands up both times, because I don't know. But what I do know is that it's interesting that a lot of the things that we would be diagnosing and treating, sometimes against people's will, are exactly the same things that at certain times throughout history, and actually even today, in certain contexts, are exactly the things that put people on a pedestal. I mean, one classic example of that, and we may talk about later on, would be Derek Akora. You know, is he a medium? Or is he a liar? Or is he mad? I don't know. Do you? So it's interesting, isn't it? That's all I'm going to say. It's interesting. And I genuinely do not know. But I think it's important that we keep the question in mind. Are you okay with that? And if anybody's very deeply into, say, for example, spiritualism or anything like that, I'm not trying to have a go at what you believe, because I genuinely don't know. But I think sometimes it's important just to ask the question. I do remember, though, it's quite interesting when you look at cultures and mental health and mental disorder within cultures. I remember going to Glastonbury a few years ago. Have anybody been to Glastonbury? Yeah, interesting place, isn't it? I was sat there with two very well-respected professionals in a cafe called the Blue Note, which is at the, the bottom of the, the high street in Glastonbury. 
and they were having this remarkable conversation. One of them was a GP. I mean, you know, these are very established people. They were having a conversation about how there was a twin energy vortex at the bottom of the high street, and that was why everybody in Glastonbury was going to have a really bad day. And that's culturally acceptable in Glastonbury to, to believe that sort of stuff. At the same meal or session or whatever it was, uh, it's a vegetarian cafe, it's lovely actually. If you go to Glastonbury, go to the Blue Note, it's lovely. Um, there was a, a lady came in and asked for fried onions. And the woman behind the counter said, we haven't got any onions today. I remember it specifically because of her next comment, which was in all seriousness, I'm sure, she was saying that she must be karmically fated never to have fried onions. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, mean, I didn't say anything, but in my head, my response was, go and buy an onion, bring it back, we'll fry it for you. <laughs> but I think that the way that people are culturally conditioned to think has a huge bearing on what is and is not mental disorder. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So... We have culture to think about, but there's usually a consensus, even era to era or country to country. I mean, Glastonbury is an exception, but if you look at just about any town in this country, for example, you will find people will have more or less the same ideas about what is and is not mental health. Because that's how we view it now. It wasn't always that way. That's Hippocrates. Nice guy. He was quite groundbreaking in his time. Because he was the one that moved away from the idea that mental disorder was divine punishment, which had been the main viewpoint of until Hippocrates. And he started, amazingly, he started talking about the brain, the organ of the brain, which of course is something we talk about now. I say amazingly because actually at the time, most people thought that the seat of the self was the heart, not the brain. So it's quite groundbreaking. He had no science behind it at all, because it, there was no... There was no real information to base a scientific study on at all, yet he, he got it. He seemed to understand that. The ancient Egyptians were very similar. That's the Ebus papyrus, uh, and that also talked about the brain. It also talked about different gods and spirits and the effects of the supernatural on people and all of that. It also did something really nice. The Ebus papyrus, along with Hippocrates, talked not just about divine punishment, but also talked about divine gifts and how some people were blessed by the gods. You didn't just, just get cursed by them, sometimes people were blessed. Uh, and I certainly I know a lot of people, for example, who hear voices who very definitely believe that to be a very positive experience. And I would find it quite difficult to disagree with a lot of them, to be honest, because when you look at their, at their lives, their circumstances, and what they've been able to achieve because of their experiences, it's very difficult to disagree. So, the other thing I want to say is that abnormal experience isn't necessarily a bad thing. But sometimes what we need to do is learn how to use it. And that, to me, is really what, um, what mental health care is all about. It's about helping people to make the best of what they've got. And very often, when people do make the best of what they've got, we find that what they've got is significantly better than what we've got. Not always, but a lot of the time. Interesting, though. Any questions, comments, or challenges so far? I'm going to keep asking just until people start talking to me. Okay, all right. We're going to skip a couple of thousand years, and um, 
come to relatively recent history. That's nice, isn't it? I think that is, um, I think that's an illustration of the Salem witch trials in America. But it's the same sort of scenario that was going on uh, all over Europe, all over the Americas, for a couple of hundred years, really. I know a, a, a woman who's a, a Wiccan, and she talks about the Holocaust, not as the Second World War, her version of the Holocaust is the, uh, the witch hunts of, you know, that two or three hundred period, where, you know, it was the same number of people were hanged, pressed, burned, or otherwise killed. Largely for being different, or for understanding things like healing, and stuff like that. But also, if you hear voices, you're a witch, for example. Because you're obviously communing with the devil. We've moved on from that, haven't we? Yeah? What do you reckon? Have we moved on from that or not? I should hope so. He's a very interesting man. That's Father Daniel Petra Caracciano. He was imprisoned in 2007 for murdering a young woman called Irena Corsini. She had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. He decided she was possessed and exorcised her. The exorcism involved... Well, I've, heard two, I've read two reports. One is tied, the other is nailed, but either way, crucified for three days until she died of dehydration. He's in prison now. After the trial, he said, I don't know what the fuss is about. I have saved her. We haven't really moved on from this. What's your reaction to that? Sorry? <laughs> Well, if we look at it in terms of culture, though, the other thing that he said is in the Greek Orthodox Church, my methods are very commonplace, very normal. So if we look at it in terms of culture, is he mad or is he a product of his culture? I think it's really interesting. There is a, a psychiatrist in this country who works out at the University of Edinburgh who regularly meets with local churches to decide which people he will treat and which people the churches should be with. We're not actually that far away from that. And I make no comment on whether or not I agree with that, because I can't. I'll simply say to you, this is still happening. But at least we don't slap people in big asylums anymore. Where's that? Does anybody know? It's not too far from here. What's that, Matt? Stafford. St. George's in Stafford. I just put that there because I trained there, you see. So. I always like to put pictures of the Stafford because that's where I trained. So. <laughs> Let's move on to today, though. I think we've probably done enough of setting the context. I'm going to move that because if I spill coffee all over that data projector, people will not like that. Let's move on to today. Have you heard of the ISOS, the International Study of Schizophrenia? Dead interest in this. I'll tell you the story behind it. The World Health Organization study is a 15-year, what we call longitudinal study, that's a study over time, where they went to countries all around the world, in, in every continent, I assume apart from the Poles, and they identified people newly diagnosed who would fit the Western diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia. And then they followed them for 15 years. 
to see how well these people did. Some areas had up to 90% recovery over 15 years. So here's a question. If you were diagnosed with schizophrenia, would you like to be in England, in Holland, in China, in rural India, or Afghanistan? Holland. Any others? India. Nobody's choosing this country. You were right, rural India, a place called, and I always pronounce this badly, Chandriga, I think it's called, uh, unless anybody in the room can correct me on how to pronounce that, but it's, it's a place in, uh, I believe, southern India, where, as I understand it, it's a largely subsistence economy for most of the population. They don't have the time, nor do they have access to the sort of medications that we have in this country. They don't have psychiatrists running about writing notes on people. They basically have a culture where you do what needs to be done or the local economy crashes. As I understand it, I may be wrong with that, but that's my view. What I do know is that they have an 89% recovery rate. That's pretty cool, isn't it? 89% recovery from schizophrenia, which incidentally some people will tell you is the thing that you cannot recover from. 89% do. Here's a question. What's the recovery rate for schizophrenia in the United Kingdom? 25, somebody said? 10? Any others? Zero? It varies from year to year, but it hovers at about 33%. Right now. What do you reckon it was at the first survey, and I'll bear in mind it, difficult to compare like for like because ideas and focus have changed over the years. What do you reckon the recovery rate was in 1890? It was about 33%. Exactly the same as it is now. 1950s, we got the wonder drug, chlorpromazine. The first, what we call, antipsychotic. At the time, they were a bit more honest. They called it a major tranquilizer. Sorry, but that's what it is. What do you reckon the recovery rate was in 1959? 33%. Then in the 90s, we got the, uh, the new atypical neuroleptics, the, the posh all singing, all dancing, antipsychotic drugs. Recovery rate in the 90s was 33%. Why? With all of this tech and all of the the millions of, of quid that goes into research and developing the medications that are supposed to make all of the difference, why are we still at 33%? Absolutely. Many other. Yeah, many other factors. Absolutely. If we take the experience from the ISOS, the 89% thing, people remain part of the community. In the, and certainly in the communities where people do better, they are part of their community and they have a valued place in that community. How many people do you know with a diagnosis of schizophrenia who also have a job and lots and lots of mates? In this culture, there are exceptions, but in this culture, when you get your diagnosis of a serious mental disorder, 
one of the first things that happens is you lose your job. It's called social drift. Very well recognized. There's lots of reports on social drift and what happens if you get a diagnosis of serious mental disorder. If you've got a job, you'll probably lose it. If you haven't got a job, you are going to find it much more difficult to get one. People ultimately end up, they drift down and down and down the economic and the social scale until they end up in a bedsit looking at four walls and listening to the voices. That's not exactly what you say. There are many other factors. That's not the grounds for recovery. Recovery is really about being part of your society.